Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome a good friend, Marcos Irigre, who leads business development for the VCU Liver Institute in Richmond, Virginia. Marcos holds a master's degree in health administration from Duke and joined VCU in 1995. Marcos, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Tom, for thinking of me. And I've looked at the other folks that participated in the Crosswinds, and I'm very honored and privileged to be part of the group that you've been having these podcasts with. So thank you so much. You bet. You know, I've probably spent as much time at VCU over the years as I have at any academic medical center. And when I think of VCU, I'm always impressed by the balance that you've maintained between your pursuit of private sector market growth and your traditional role as the region's premier safety net institution. Has that balance been a conscious strategic priority for you? And how have you managed to accomplish it? Well, it's fascinating. It's part of the fabric of VCU going back to its legacy as as part of MCV. And is it intentional? Yes. And I think with a mission of being accessible and and taking care of all who come, uh, regardless of their situation or station in life, has been just part of the ethos of this institution for more than decades, you know, dating back to its origins. And so I think when you ponder that and you look at the mission and you look at the enabling legislation in 2000 for the health system, which is all about specifically, among other things, of the educational elements and the patient care, but taking care of the Commonwealth's indigent population that is in the statute, uh, it is ground in there in a very fundamental way. But it goes beyond just the words that are etched somewhere, whether it's in statute or, or on walls in buildings going back time. It is just part of the continuing reason people come here, whether it's to get an education or to provide care to others or to teach others. That's what has bound us together over the years. So yeah, I think it's something that you detected when you arrived here and it's something that is ongoing. I remember attending a lot of your senior management meetings over the years, and I got a sense from your leadership team and your faculty, that there was an enthusiasm over meeting the needs of the socioeconomically disenfranchised. It wasn't something that you guys just did because you felt like you had to. I got a sense that there was a genuine organizational commitment, maybe not even organizational, a personal commitment of the people in that room. Is that something that you recruit, or is that something that folks develop in the course of being part of the organization? I wouldn't say it's a combination of both. I think folks that come to VCU, they gravitate to the core of this mission of taking care of all in a way that's self-selecting those that want to be here and be part of this mission. And even new leaders who have arrived here, Dr. Kellerman in October 2020 and Dr. Rapley back in August of 2015, again, coming from the outside in, it was part of what attracted them here. And I think that whether it's the CEO senior vice president for health sciences level, or it's anyone coming into the institution. It's part of that understanding of what brings them here. And I think it's one that gets reinforced while they're here. It's just something that's part of the fabric of this institution. You know, the country, Marcos, has rightly become less tolerant of health disparities over recent years, but relatively few provider systems have figured out what to do about those disparities, and particularly the medical manifestations of the social determinants of health. When I'm asked for examples around the country of success stories, 
I often point to your chronic disease medical home program for patients with challenging social determinants of health. Can you describe that program and more specifically, how did it get its initial organizational support? How does it work? And what's unique about it? Well, you did an excellent elevator speech on that one, Tom, <laughs> in describing it. That, that is what differentiates. It's, you know, you're having your primary care home, and we've had success with that model like many have. But with the complex care environment that is just across the street uh, over in the ACC and then also in the geriatric program across town, is you do have those other practitioners that are essential to the care model there. And they're there simultaneously and engaging as a team. So the visit with a primary care physician, the visit with a social worker, the visit with the pharmacist, the visit with the dietitian that is there. And so when you look at the social determinants of health and what are needed as far as various components, a dietitian is critical. They need to be looking at what their diet is. Do they have access to food? Are they in a food desert or underserved area and how we can help them get the foods they need. And then that can certainly help with a lot of the chronic conditions that they may have. So you're right. It is a wraparound care with those practitioners that are there uh, in the environment. And then they have their team-based approach where they get together separately and evaluate the care plan and the success that they're having with each individual patient. Marcos, one of the things that I'm curious about When folks wrestled with treating these complex chronic populations, we used to think that when they missed an appointment or if they were having a hard time getting to an appointment, that the answer was for us to give them a taxi voucher so that someone could go pick them up. But if I'm remembering your program, you guys came to the conclusion that these folks don't conveniently decompensate on schedule. So the fact that they had an appointment two weeks from Tuesday may or may not do any good if there's something wrong today. How do you keep in touch with these folks so that you're on top of it and not waiting for two missed appointments while that person's not doing well? That goes back to a member of the team, and it it can be a social worker, it can be one of the nurse coordinators who have these patients as part of their panel. And so they remain in contact with them, and we have to make sure that you have a way of contacting them. Uh, Not everybody has the same uh, digital devices, but staying in touch with them so that you can assure that they not only have the appointment and they know the appointment, but you're right, that they have the transportation needs met and that they don't miss their appointments. Obviously, during the pandemic, it was a challenge with this population, even though like many institutions, we quickly flipped over into telehealth, most of that being telephonic through the phone, other strategies to using the video type of teleconferencing health. But in this population, using the telehealth, but then also we kept even during the height of the early part of the pandemic, certain physical locations open. So we know that we had to get this population into that environment safely and then provide that wraparound care. And are there times when you actually take the care to the patient rather than hoping to get the patient to come to you? Yes, and that's been a big success in our geriatrics program. Basically, it's going back to the older days with physicians making house calls. And it's a house call program that Dr. Peter Bowling, who was our lead of our geriatrics program here, started many years ago. And it isn't just making those calls to nursing homes and uh, those types of facilities, but making calls to folks' home. And in using that same strategy with the complex care population, bringing the care to them uh, so that they don't begin to have problems and decompensate at a scheduled basis. You need to stay on top of it. It's amazing, isn't it, how old ideas come back to us? 
and with all of the technological advances that we've made over the decades, that something that we were doing 50 years ago made a lot of sense then, and for a different reason, makes a lot of sense today. Well, you have companies that have popped up, like Dispatch Health, that do these things. Yeah, you guys have had an extraordinary impact on the lives of these folks. I remember seeing a video that you shared a number of years ago that made me feel inspired. Can you share what this program has meant to the patients? Not to the money, not to the resource consumption, but the impact that it's had on the lives of those folks that I heard and saw in that video. Yeah, Tom, that video was something special. And that's sort of where the communications and marketing side of my career kicked in, working with Cheryl and Dr. Bannon, Arlene, and the whole care team. But finding those patient stories, because you're right, it goes beyond the numbers. And different audiences that we would have to regularly, leadership, boards, state officials on the progress that we're making with the program, the number of the graph slides showing the trend lines, you know, showing peer-reviewed journal articles that have been written about the program. Yes, that has an impact. But when you are able to capture the emotion that these patients have of gratitude for being a part of a program that helped them put their lives back together, that's where it gets down to a personal level. It's not a statistic anymore. It's Mary or Ben or Carol or Susan. It's those patients who were able to rebuild their lives and enjoy their lives where in the past they hadn't been able to. So it was a way to communicate about this program in a way that I think it got to you in a way, and that was the intent. It was extraordinarily well done and a reminder of why we got into healthcare instead of another industry where perhaps we would have had success in a different way. But this really brought back why we're doing what we're doing, yeah? Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to the first part of our conversation here. You know, Simon Sendak, what is the purpose? What is the why? The why is there in that video. That's the why. What did you learn from that chronic disease medical home concept that is translated into delivering better care for patients who aren't struggling with social determinants of health? Have there been some crosswalks from lessons learned in the chronic disease medical home over to the kind of normal, if you want to call it our normal area of business? There has been. It takes a lot of resources to scale something like this. But where we have seen some success is moving over into, I get ready to say a smaller population, but uh, the pediatric population where they may have social determinants of health that are unfavorable, but they may not. But certainly those children that have those chronic conditions uh, benefiting from that wraparound care. And then at the other end of the age spectrum, moving it into the elderly population and those strategies, I mentioned Peter Bowling, who leads our geriatric program, leading the home calls program. It's expanding it out that way. I think there are opportunities now that we have substantial presence in rural markets in South Hill, Virginia, with Community Memorial Hospital and in Tappahannock up in the Upper Peninsula in rural Virginia, is how with a rural population that has similar needs, how can we adapt this model that has worked in this urban environment into a rural environment too. You just raised a point that I hadn't thought of before. It almost feels like at the two ends of the life cycle, during the first couple of years of life and during the last couple of years of life, that's when people are at their least independent. Forgetting about healthcare, just raising children, you know, it's very labor intensive at the very beginning of life. And then at the tail end of the life cycle, it's perhaps when we need a more hands-on team-oriented healthcare delivery system. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. It made me think of my great-grandmother, Eleanor, who lived to be 105. And she used to say, once an adult, twice a child. And that sums it up right there. Mm-hmm. And, and that the dependencies that you have early in life, and then certainly the ones that you have later in life. And her granddaughter, my, my mother now is in a situation now where she's later in life and, and needing that kind of care and being able to have resources to help provide that for her is important. I'm excited that you've moved into the leadership role for your Institute for Liver Disease and Metabolic Health. I know it has a clinical focus in one disease entity, but let's take it back to the bigger picture of your role in the alleviation of health disparities and improving the lives of these chronically ill patients. How does your new institute equip you to take a stronger run at that? If you look at the name, it is liver disease and metabolic health. And I think it's the metabolic health where the leaders of the institute, the hepatologist, Dr. Arun Sanyal, who is the director of the institute, and his colleague, Dr. Todd Stravitz, whose family's foundation provided the lead gift of $104 million to establish the institute. You know, putting metabolic health in there was intentional because, again, the liver isn't just a single organ that does uh, one or two things. It does multiple things. And its function is vital to how other organs operate. So, for example, you know, how it operates with regulation of blood sugar and production of glycogen, which is stored, how it regulates other nutrients and components of the blood, detoxifies the blood so that other organs are not harmed. It really is fascinating to learn about the liver and how central it is to keeping that homeostasis in a human body and making sure that it's functioning properly. And then you get into the behaviors. And this is where then it gets into the, the social determinants of health, Tom. And unfortunately, those that are in areas of high negative social determinants, their nutrition is poor. Some of their habits of smoking and alcohol consumption and other uh, substance abuse is high. And this weighs on the liver. And the liver then develops various conditions. Let's say they aren't abusers of substances, but they are in an area where their access to healthier foods is, is less. And so they're eating high carbohydrate diets that uh, cause them to to gain weight, become obese, and then you develop fatty liver disease, which is a precursor to longer-term disease and, and poor outcomes that, again, begin to affect other organs. What is called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is leading into a scarring of the liver similar to hepatitis where the liver scars. Yeah, the liver can regenerate itself. We've found that in transplantation, but it can't regenerate from scar tissue. And so when you get into those types of diseases that have their, their causes and roots and social determinants of health, that we've been discussing, I think it's going to be an important outreach component of the Institute for educating, not only just populations, but also those providers in those communities, those folks that drive the policies that enable other elements of of housing and food security. It's all central to doing what we want to do, which is we want to eliminate liver disease and its effect on the human body. Well, I know you've had many roles in your career at VCU. I'm thrilled that this new opportunity is giving you a chance to take things in a whole new direction. Yeah, it's a scale up here. I mean, we're taking a section within a division, within a department, within a school of medicine, within a university and a health system. (laughs) And it's exciting because the leader, Dr. Sanyal, he's globally known. And so that's another component of the Institute is, yes, it's going to be regional and it's going to be important for the populations here in Central Virginia and beyond. 
And when I say beyond, he's got connections in Latin America and in India, which is uh, where he grew up and eventually immigrated here to the United States. And so grateful that when he came here nearly 40 years ago to join us. But it's that connectedness across the globe with diseases of the liver. Marcos, we always try to close our conversations with a question that gives folks a chance to learn something about our guests that they would have never otherwise had an opportunity to know. As an old college baseball player myself, I have to ask you, how does a five foot seven guy weighing 170 pounds survive as a college football player? Yeah. And what was going through his mind? Was he out of his mind when he decided <laughs> to step on that field? And, you know, Tom, you've often used this term of looking through the ear hole of your helmet. And that isn't just a saying. It is something that is actual, not only looking through the ear hole, but picking the turf that's wedged into your face mask. And uh, you know, it kind of goes back to when I was younger and, and what sports you gravitate to when you're in your youth. And, you know, I had so-so hand-eye coordination. So sports like baseball and basketball, I had limited success in. But something with football where I could carry ball, had some quickness, you know, could outrun some guys. But even being aggressive on the defensive side, I could chase somebody down and, and tackle them. That kind of led me down that path. And I think football is one of the sports with all the talk of CTE and, and so forth, which is tragic. It is a sport unlike others that I played and our sons had played too growing up, where you just have this discipline as a unit, whether you're in the offense or defense. And then as a combined team of, you know, each play is a skirmish. Each quarter is a battle. The whole game is a type of war with the other opponent. And it gets physical, but it's enjoying the sport, but then it's also knowing your limits. So, you know, getting clobbered one time playing Georgia Southwest College and walking off the field with the uh, trainer with uh, ammonia capsules stuck up under my nose, you know, it's like maybe I should rethink when I get out here. Well, if you weren't fast afoot at the beginning, you get fast really quickly when you're five foot seven. Is that right? Well, you do. And you have that, <laughs> that saying, the coaches said, you better have your head on a swivel because, um, you know, they're coming at you. They're but it, you. it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed playing and you learn a lot of things like you did, I'm sure, playing baseball at Illinois and Big Ten, the experiences that you have that carry with you. Well, you know, I've enjoyed collaborating with you for what, over 20 years now. And I have to tell you, I've always admired the clarity of your thinking and really your poise. I've enjoyed seeing you in situations where you welcome being uncomfortable. I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm glad that our listeners had a chance to get to know you a little bit better today. Thanks for making time for us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to the next time that we can sit on a porch and have an iced tea and talk. Sounds good to me. Thanks a million, Marcos. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.